welcome to the Swing for the Fences podcast. It is Monday, January 25th, about 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon uh, here on the East Coast. I'm your host, Andrew Shapiro, coming to you as always from my apartment here in Manhattan. Really excited for today's episode. It's an episode that's fully about the AFC and NFC Championship games that happened, obviously. Yesterday, we have our Super Bowl teams, the Bucks and the Chiefs. We're going to go over both of those games from yesterday. Um, a bit more of a deeper dive into the Tampa Bay-Green Bay game, to be perfectly honest with you, just because I felt that was the more interesting game. I couldn't take my eyes off that game. I, I really watched carefully because I was excited to see, yes, the legends in terms of you know Brady versus Rodgers, but I thought that these were two really talented teams that had a lot of top-end talent, but also had similar weaknesses. So I thought that game was really great. Obviously, came down to a one-score game, one-score margin, really um, kind of close into the the final minutes there. We'll talk about Kansas City, Kansas City's victory over Buffalo as well. Um, have a little bit less on that game just because it was pretty much decided, you know, through three quarters. You really didn't have any doubt that Kansas City was going to pull out the victory there and move on to their second straight Super Bowl appearance, just the way that the game was going. So. In terms of the drama, in terms of you know the storylines, I have more for you for that NFC Championship game than the AFC, but we do cover both, and that's going to include you know your hidden gem for this podcast episode. It's not a player, I'll tell you that right now. It's actually a coach. So I'm curious if you will, you'll be able to guess who the hidden gem of this podcast episode is. Again, someone on the sidelines, not necessarily a player. So let's get into it. All right, we're going to start with the more interesting game, which I've mentioned already. I thought it was the NFC Championship game between the Bucks and the Packers. Really fascinating. I was glued to my TV watching this every step of the way. Um, didn't want to take my eyes off it. Didn't want this game to really end, to be honest with you. Uh, I would have loved some overtime. There was a reason why we didn't get to overtime. We'll get to Matt LaFleur's controversial decision in a second. But I was just really excited, you know, coming into this game. Um, and, and really lived up to expectations. I mentioned, you know, you obviously have the legendary quarterbacks, and that storyline was kind of, you know, beaten into us in terms of, you know, repeated multiple times in the lead-up to this game. But I was also really curious because both of these teams have similar weaknesses. I thought this was going to be a game about weakness. Whose weakness was worse? Because they both have the similar weaknesses. So on, you know, Green Bay's side, I think their offensive line – could have been a source of problems for them. Obviously, they lost David Bakhtiari, their all-pro left tackle, to a season-ending injury. They had to replace him with a replacement player on the left side. But you also go back to their first matchup, even when Bakhtiari was healthy. Earlier in the season, Tampa Bay stomped Green Bay, and a big part of it was that they were able to consistently pressure Aaron Rodgers, get in his face. That disrupted the rhythm of the offense, and that was with a healthy all-pro left tackle. Now you remove your left tackle and go into this game, a big deal was going to be, and this is not a unique thought. I, I read and heard about this from a variety of sources, is that a big a big part of this game in terms of determining the outcome, could Green Bay's offensive line, who struggled against Tampa when they were fully healthy, could they handle Tampa's pressure? Could they handle Jason Pierre-Paul? Could they, could they handle Shaq Barrett You know, while they were missing Bakhtiari? So that's one weakness Green Bay had coming into this game. Another weakness that they had was their pass defense. For anyone not named Jair Alexander, Alexander, obviously the all-pro, you know, cornerback for Green Bay. He was the number two cornerback in pass coverage, according to pro football focus. But there is some a lack of depth in terms of the Green Bay secondary beyond Alexander. So you look at their other starting cornerback, Kevin King. He was ranked 152nd 
And there were some real questions about him. He was coming in with a back injury, but there are questions even when healthy, you know, could he be a weak link that someone like Tom Brady could really pick on? So coming into this game for Green Bay, you're worried about the offensive line holding up and you're worried about the pass defense going up against the greatest quarterback of all time. Against Tampa, similar concept. Worried about their offensive line. Their right guard went down two games ago. They have this journeyman, you know, backup right guard who, you know, is only starting the second game of his entire NFL career, and it's coming in the NFC Championship game. So you're wondering, you know, Tom Brady, his weakness, we know this as a 43-year-old quarterback, if you can pressure him, if you can get in his face, force him to rush some throws, that's where he really gets uncomfortable. That's where we've seen him struggle throughout you know the regular season now you have a right guard who's not used to being there playing in easily the biggest game of his life would the green bay defensive line you know be able to to take advantage of that and then also you know tampa bay's pass defense was also another potential weakness not really anyone individually who's really bad in the secondary but they were the 21st best 21st ranked pass defense and their rush defense was the best in the league so if you're looking for a part of the Tampa defense to exploit. You're not trying to stuff Aaron Jones through the number one, you know, rush defense, 25 carries a game. You're trying to pick on the 21st ranked pass defense. So again, it's really interesting. These rosters, these teams do kind of mirror each other. You've got these legendary QBs, but you've got weaknesses. Each of these teams questions on their offensive line. Each of these teams questions when it comes to their pass defense, when you're going up against a hall of fame quarterback on the other side. So that's what really interested me. I thought, like I said, you know, again, this was a game about whose weaknesses were worse because I think that would go a long way into determining the outcome of this game. And I think that that actually proved right. You know, I think on the one hand, you saw Tampa, again, their offensive line, big questions about their right guard. I thought he was fine. He did allow a sack earlier in the game to Kenny Clark. But besides that, as a unit, the offensive line actually did a pretty good job of giving Tom Brady some time to throw and keeping him upright. Green Bay only had one sack, only four QB hits on Brady. You know, the reason that Brady was bad in this game, we'll get to him in a second, but he was he was pretty awful in this game, especially in the second half. You know, his poor decisions were not necessarily because he was getting hit as he was thrown. There were just some unforced errors there. There were some drops on the Tampa Bay offense in terms of their running backs and receivers dropping very casual passes. But I thought the O-line actually stood out pretty well. And then you look at their pass defense. You know, Carlton Davis struggled a couple times. He was turned around a couple times against some of the Green Bay receivers, including Devontae Adams. You know, but who hasn't been? Adams is one of the best receivers in the game. And overall, I thought the secondary for Tampa Bay really held up. You know, they they had um, a pick of Rodgers. They forced a fumble, um, you know, for, for Jones, Aaron Jones, the, run, the Green Bay running back, put the ball on the ground. That was forced by the safety whitehead for Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay then converted that turnover into a touchdown very soon after. So forcing two turnovers kind of, you know, let Aaron Rodgers kind of cook a little bit, but he didn't really go off and go crazy. So again, in a game of weaknesses, Tampa Bay's offensive line, they were fine. Their pass defense, they were mediocre to fine. Okay, that's that's good enough. And so it's a question of, again, whose weaknesses were worse and I think Green Bay's weaknesses were a lot worse. You look at their offensive line. We talked about it. Can the left tackle stand up? Can the offensive line give Rodgers time to throw? And I thought that Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett were fantastic in this game. Five sacks between them. Overall, they uh, Tampa Bay hit Rodgers eight times. 
So he was under siege a little bit there. You know, Shaq Barrett, the best pass rusher that you've never heard of. Three sacks in this game. He led the league last year, I think, with 19 and a half. This is a great you know, example of a reclamation project. He was determined to be a bust. He spent several years in Denver, didn't really do anything, couldn't find his role there, really struggled to produce. He comes over to Tampa Bay, low expectations, leads the league in sacks last year, comes up huge in this game, in the NFC Championship game, to have three sacks by yourself. And to be clear, these weren't all against the replacement left tackle. So the offensive line for Green Bay as a unit definitely struggles. I thought that they were worse than Tampa's offensive line. And then you go into Green Bay's pass defense. We talked about, okay, are there weak links in this secondary beyond Jair Alexander? On the one hand, they did pick Brady off three times. You've got to give them credit. They did win the turnover battle in this game. Green Bay did pick Brady off three times. On the other hand, Green Bay only committed two turnovers. So technically, Green Bay actually won the turnover battle here. But you really have to look at Kevin King, the other corner for Green Bay. We mentioned he was 152nd coming into this game, and he was really, really brutal in this game. Allowed two touchdowns. He allowed a wide-open score to Mike Evans where he mistimed his jump kind of embarrassingly, jumped way too early, let Evans get behind him. He gave up a long touchdown to Scotty Miller at the end of the first half. People are killing Pettin, the the defensive coordinator for Green Bay, for setting up in a bad defense. But I think you've got to give a little bit of responsibility to your starting cornerback, King, in that situation too. Maybe they weren't in the right scheme. But if you're King, like you've got to know who you're lined up against. You've got to know you're up against Scotty Miller. He ran like a 4-3-9-40 in the combine. He's a speedster. You got to know time and situation is one of the last plays before the first half. You can't let anyone get behind you. And you watch a replay of that play, and King is like almost going in slow motion. It's not like Scotty Miller, you know, jukes him with a double move or anything. It's just a straight go route. He just glides right past King, catches a touchdown for Brady with one second to go in the first half. I thought King was was really terrible in this game. And then he commits, you know, the game clinching. Uh, holding penalty at the end of the game. I know that there's a lot of complaining on social media and whatever about, you know, the refs let them play the whole game. And then they all of a sudden called King on a defensive holding penalty. If you watch this, there's a, there's a, a picture uh, going around social media or at least on Twitter that shows King basically literally pulling on the Jersey of Tampa Bay's receiver. And if you, can't get your mind around that being called for a penalty, I I can't really help you. I mean, there's clear evidence that he's literally holding on to the guy's jersey and pulling him back. And so I know, you know, the refs were letting them play, let the players decide the outcome. If you look at this, the flip side, and the refs didn't throw a flag there, then we'd be talking about how the refs are blind and how we need, you know, the, the refs in that game should never ref another championship game, you know, in their careers. So I think you've got to, separate from the president that was established in this game of, of letting them be physical versus a clear and obvious holding call. It doesn't really get much more obvious than that. So I was actually fine with the call. I thought it was just the third example of King being really bad. And and what also kind of bothered me about King, and I'm not trying to pick on any individual player because these games are bigger than any individual player most of the time. But he also was like very not self-aware you know, there's there was a play, I think, in the second half where Mike Evans dropped an easy pass that would have gone for a big game, a, a big gain. And King, who 
by the way, had been torched for two touchdowns at this point already, gets up and starts trash-talking Evans and starts, like, puffing his chest out and nodding his head and saying, like, yeah, look at me. I'm a big reason why you dropped that pass. The reality is it was a very catchable ball. King actually didn't do anything to disrupt Evans at all. I, I don't like players who are playing terribly and then have this false sense of bravado and arrogance and start trash talking. Like, dude, you are single-handedly almost costing your team the game on defense. Then a receiver who you're defending against and is wide open drops a pass and you have the audacity to get up and get in his face. Like, sit down. Why don't you guard someone for once? And then he comes back at the end of the game and, and commits the penalty that clinches the game. For Tampa Bay. So I thought he was he was brutal, Kevin King, in this game. And so, again, not to kind of repeat myself, but this game was, again, about weaknesses. Whose weaknesses were more pronounced? And in the offensive line battle, Green Bay's offensive line did not hold up like Tampa Bay's did. Five sacks and eight hits on Rodgers versus one sack and four hits on Brady. Green Bay's pass defense beyond Jair Alexander did not hold up compared to Tampa Bay's pass defense. Green Bay pass defense, yes, three interceptions, but King almost single-handedly destroyed the pass defense for Green Bay in this game. So in a game of weaknesses, I thought that Green Bay's weaknesses were much more glaring than Tampa Bay's. And and I, I hate to kind of bring it back because I know there's been so much talk about Green Bay's decision to draft Love as the quarterback of the future and how that pissed off Rodgers. And we've heard all the the cliche stories of how they lit a fire under Rodgers by drafting his ultimate, his, his replacement, you know, in the draft. I think this is really kind of a good example of maybe they could have used that first round pick for a different purpose. Maybe you draft an offensive lineman. Maybe you draft a cornerback to pair with Alexander so that you're not relying on Kevin King in the NFC championship game to destroy your chances. So, yeah, everyone's saying, oh, it worked out for them. They were proved right. They were the number one overall seed. They had the best record in the NFC. They let a fire under Rodgers. He's going to win the MVP. No harm done here with your first-round pick. Well, maybe if you have two huge weaknesses on your roster that could be really exploited by another team in the NFC Championship game, maybe you should have thought about using that first-round pick for first round pick for a different purpose. That's all I'm going to say. You know, another thing I'd just like to highlight on Tampa Bay's side, because we don't want to just totally be negative, we're going to get to Brady in a second, which is negative. But it was interesting how some of their other weapons also kind of stepped up. Scotty Miller, I mentioned, caught that huge touchdown pass at the end of the first half, uh, a huge deal because they were looking at either a long field goal uh, or maybe even coming away with zero points at all at the end of the first half. Instead, he gets beyond his man. Even though King had a brain fart, you still have got to make that move to catch the ball. Big play for Scotty Miller, the biggest catch in his career. He's really the fourth or fifth option in terms of receivers on this team. In terms of pass catching options, you would have, you know, Evans, Godwin, Antonio Brown's hurt in this game, but you also have Gronk. So, you know, Scotty Miller is not at the top of your scouting report in terms of people you need to take away. It was really cool as kind of one of the quote unquote others, how he was able to contribute. Cameron Bray also ended up with a touchdown in this game, actually had more catches than Gronkowski. Again, he's really their third-string tight end behind Gronk and also behind O.J. Howard, who people might forget about him, but he was supposed to have a big year this year, unfortunately had a, a, a big-time injury that ended his season prematurely. So Bray was kind of coming into the season as your third-string tight end, ends up making a touchdown catch 
and having a couple of big grabs in the NFC Championship game. So I thought it was really cool how some of the quote-unquote other weapons in this Tampa Bay offense kind of, you know, um, help the offense out, especially when you consider that Mike Evans dropped a couple of really catchable balls and that Tom Brady was really bad in this game. And that's the the last point that I'll make on this game. We'll, then we'll move on to the AFC Championship. You know, who knows? It's, it's 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 Monday afternoon, so maybe we'll get into more you know detailed analysis of this game as the week goes on. But I think that we've got to really question Brady's performance. And I think that he's lucky that the rest of his team and his teammates really picked up the slack here. Because, you know, I think a turning point in this game in terms of making it a game, you know, they're up 28 to 10. They're cruising. Tampa Bay's dominating this game. You think this may be a repeat of the blowout win they had during the regular season. And then Brady has this unforced interception midway through the third quarter. You know, there's no pressure on him. So you can't blame the Green Bay pass rush on forcing a bad throw. He just kind of lofts a ball down the right sideline and doesn't see the safety help coming up, you know, over the top. And it's an easy pick for, for the Green Bay secondary. A really bad decision, I guess not recognizing the coverage they were in, but a mistake that we would kill any other quarterback for making. Then the next drive, you know, Mike Evans drops a couple passes. Okay, in his hands, you've got to catch those. And then Brady throws an interception. Yes, it's off Mike Evans' hands, but the ball was also high. And again, you can't really blame the pressure there. It was just an errant throw. It's high and wide. Maybe you can make the argument that Evans shares in the responsibility of that. If you get your hands on the ball in terms of the talent of Mike Evans, he should be able to catch that. So maybe you split the blame 50-50 there. But still, back-to-back drives, back-to-back Brady interceptions. One was a bad decision. The other, a poorly placed throw. And then the third drive in a row, he throws another pick. And this was another bad decision. I think the worst pick of the three where, okay, he's getting a little bit of pressure off his right side and he's forced to rush a throw. But you're up by five in this situation. He throws off his back foot and just throws a moonshot, a prayer, up towards I think it was Godwin. Godwin's turned around. He doesn't even know where the ball is. Brady just throws up a prayer as as if like they're – you know, down by five, not up by five. And as if, you know, it's the last minute of the game and you're just throwing a a Hail Mary into the end zone. Instead, you have the lead. You don't need to make that throw. Even if you take a sack, at least it's not a turnover. You can still punt the ball. You can still maintain possession. But he gets pressured. He gets rushed into a bad decision, just lofts it up in a prayer, hoping Godwin can make a play. Or I think it was Godwin on the receiving end of that. And again, I want to emphasize, anyone else makes that throw, makes that decision, we destroy them. I mean, that is something that Mitch Trubisky would do on the Bears, where like you're locked into one read, you get some pressure, you get flustered, and you just throw it up for grabs and hope someone catches it. And instead, oh, he's Tom Brady, the GOAT. Tom Brady making his uh, another Super Bowl appearance in the quest for seven. He just finds a way to win. He was brutal in this game, at least in the second half. So there are going to be a lot of storylines. He's the greatest. He's going up against Mahomes, who's the next in line. And guys, you know, Brady just finds a way to win. That's Tom Brady. Where if you actually watch the game, this win was because of the rest of the Tampa Bay roster. This was because of some of the other guys I mentioned that helped out. This was because Shaq Baird had the game of his life. And Jason Pierre-Paul also helped out. This was because Matt LaFleur, who we'll get to in a second, made a really dumb decision. But it wasn't because of Brady. 
Yes, he threw a couple of touchdown passes. He had a couple of nice throws in the first half. But he made some horrible decisions in the second half that we would be destroying any other quarterback for doing. And so in the in the interest of fairness, I think we've got to criticize him too. Because those are two horrible decisions and then one throw that was high and wide that maybe you put a little bit on Evans. But they won in spite of Brady, not because of him. Let's just be very, very clear on that. And then the last thing I know I mentioned Brady would be the last topic. I did just want to touch on LaFleur real quick. So there, just to set the scene in case you didn't see it, or to remind you, late in the fourth quarter, around two minutes left, Packers are in the red zone. They're on, I think, the eight-yard line. They're down by eight. So you need a score and a two-point conversion to tie the game. And LaFleur decides on fourth down to go for a field goal. And people are killing him for it. He deserves to be killed for it. It's a fairly obvious reason why he's being killed for, so I'm not going to go into the details here because you've probably read about it and it's, it's kind of easy to understand. The only other thing I'd add is that when you're in a one-score game with two minutes left in the fourth quarter and you're Green Bay, what do you want? If you're going to be in that situation, who do you want to have the ball in their hands? You want your Hall of Fame, your first ballot Hall of Famer, Aaron Rodgers, to have the ball in his hands, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want Aaron Rodgers to ha- to decide the outcome of this game for you? Obviously, you'd rather be winning. You'd rather be in a better position. But if you are down by one score with two minutes left in the game in the NFC Championship game, don't you want to put the ball in the hands of not only your best player, but one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the sport? Wouldn't you want to put the ball in the hands of your offense? Who, by the way, in the history of the NFL, I just read this stat, is apparently the most efficient in terms of converting red zone opportunities into touchdowns. At least this season they were. So not only do you have one of the best quarterbacks of all time, but your offense is historically great at converting red zone chances into a touchdown, which, by the way, is what you need to tie the game as a touchdown. And instead... You take the ball out of your Hall of Fame quarterback's hands. You put your your historically great red zone offense on the sidelines so you can kick a field goal. Hoping that you have three timeouts left, you have the two-minute warning, you'll get some stops, give the ball back. The problem with this is that let's say the worst-case scenario, they go forward on fourth down, they don't get it. You still have Tampa Bay pinned back at their own eight-yard line, and you still have three timeouts. So the whole – in terms of – the, the way that Tampa was getting the ball back. It's the same situation. Green Bay still had three timeouts. They still had the two-minute warning to work with. The only difference is that Tampa Bay had like 20 better yards of field position. That's the only difference. You still need a touchdown either way. Whether you're down five or down eight, you still need a touchdown, either to tie the game or win. It's not like you were down six and you only needed a field goal. Maybe then... I still wouldn't agree with it because it's the same concept of, t- of putting the ball, taking the ball away from Rodgers. But maybe if this was to get within a field goal, you could kind of rationalize it a little bit because it's easier to get into field goal range than to score a touchdown in terms of time, consuming time. But in this situation, whether you're down or you're down five, you still need a touchdown. That didn't change. The only thing that changed was the field position that Tampa had to try and ice the game. And by the way, your defense had already given up 31 points so far. So again, I don't agree with this decision in any in any context or situation, but if your defense to this point 
had been balling, had been playing out of their minds, had only given up like seven or ten points to Tom Brady, then maybe you can understand this a little bit. But your defense already given up 31, and you're going up against the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, and you're hoping that they won't get one first down. That's the thought process. We'll cut it to five. We'll use our three timeouts. They won't get a first down. We'll get the ball back in Rodgers' hands with like a little bit over a minute to go, maybe a minute 30, whatever, and trust him to score a touchdown. There are a lot of assumptions that would have to go right for that to, to come true. So, again, many reasons to kill the floor in there. He's inexperienced. This is one of the things you get when you hire one of Sean McVay's buddies as opposed to someone who has actual real coaching experience. He's never been in this situation before. They made the NFC Championship last year and were blown out by the 49ers. So he's never been in this spot before. He makes that decision, gets killed for it, as he should. But I just wanted to add a couple of Easter eggs there in terms of the obvious reasons why you think he'd, he'd be destroyed for it. I get it. You just got to also remember that, you know, it's not just taking the ball out of Rodgers' hands. I did want to tell you guys that offense is historically great in those situations in terms of converting that into touchdowns. He said, nah, mm, I know, but I kind of feel better of cutting this to five, forcing you guys to hope that our defense, who's been bad, holds up against the greatest of all time. Who struggled? We just talked about Brady's struggles. But if I need Tom Brady to get one first down, I don't care if he's thrown three interceptions, four interceptions, five interceptions. If the game comes down to it and you want to put money on whether Tom Brady is going to get you a first down to clinch the game in a playoff game, you probably bet that he's getting that first down. So it's interesting. Maybe this is all, uh, uh, you know, ultimately maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they, they let's say Green Bay scores a touchdown. They get the two point. They tie it up 31 to 31. Brady's still getting the ball back with like two minutes left. Maybe he drives the Bucks down the field, and maybe they win on a last-second field goal or whatever. And maybe the outcome of this game is the same where the Buccaneers are going on to the Super Bowl. We'll never know. But you can't be so results-oriented, into, or you can't like let Matt LaFleur off the hook because Tampa still might have gone down the field and scored and won the game. You've got to evaluate his decision-making process. I have the, the, the best quarterback in the history of our franchise, first ho- first ballot Hall of Famer, a historically good red zone offense, and I'm going to put them on the sidelines. What do you think Tampa fans, what do you think Bruce Arians was thinking in that moment? What do you think Brady was thinking? What do you think the Tampa Bay defense was thinking in that moment? Probably a sense of relief, right? And that should probably tell you all you need to know about Matt LaFleur's decision. But anyway, that's the NFC Championship game. Awesome game. We're going to the AFC Championship game uh, next. All right, and the second championship game of Sunday, obviously the AFC, second game of the day, um, Kansas City versus Buffalo. I'll be honest with you, came into this game knowing, obviously, because it, it happened after the NFC game, You know, we know that Tampa's making it to the Super Bowl. We know Tom Brady's making it to the Super Bowl. So with that context, I was really rooting for Kansas City here. I really wanted a Mahomes-Brady Super Bowl, assuming Mahomes was healthy. Uh, so I'm happy it worked out that way, just in terms of how I was feeling pregame, thinking about this game, getting ready to watch this game, getting excited for it. I obviously wanted to see a close matchup because I really didn't have much of a dog 
in this fight, given that, you know, I'm a Giants fan. So I don't really have rivalries with either of these teams. Um, you know, the fact that Buffalo's in New York is not enough for me to root for them. Uh, I don't consider them, you know, like a bandwagon option for me. So I was hoping for a good game. And then secondly, hoping that, you know, assuming Mahomes was healthy, which we'll get to in a second, I did want to see that Brady-Mahomes matchup. So, you know, that's how I was feeling pregame. I'm, I'm really excited that it worked out that way. I think the other, some of the other keys just in terms of like setting this game up that I was thinking about, and again, these aren't necessarily like unique concepts. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of stuff. This was kind of identified some of the keys coming into this game. I think the first thing and the biggest thing, you know, was Patrick's Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes healthy? He had a concussion, so he was in the concussion protocol. He also apparently had a turf toe injury, which could be really painful coming off of the, you know, the the victory over the uh, the Browns last week. So that was a huge question. You know, the whole calculus of this game changes if you have to play Chad Henney under center as opposed to Mahomes, who is like the most talented quarterback in the league. I know Rodgers is going to win the MVP. Brady, you're kind of told repeatedly is the greatest of all time. I agree with both of those things. But just in terms of pure talent, Mahomes has a real argument of being the best quarterback in the NFL. You take him out, you put in a journeyman backup in Henny, who I know made some clutch plays to ice the game, to clinch the game against the Browns last week, including a big-time run and then a big-time fourth-down conversion. Still, there's a reason why he was a journeyman during the prime of his career and why he hasn't been heard from in several years. There's a reason why you were surprised when Chad Henney came into the game last week, you were surprised that he was still in the NFL. And that's because Chad Henney is not good. He threw a really bad pick in that game also. So, uh, you know, an obvious statement, but the first key to this game, are you getting a healthy Mahomes? And if he plays, you know, is he 70%, 80%, whatever it is, can he last the entire game? So that was a big key. Another big key in terms of the Chiefs offense, you know, there was a lot of talk from the, the experts who are a lot smarter than me just looking at the film from the first time that they that these two teams played during the regular season in that Buffalo's defense played very cautiously. They didn't want to give up the big play. They were going to drop their safeties deep. They were going to say, okay, Mahomes, we know you have an awesome arm. We know that you can throw the ball, you know, 80 yards in the air to Tyreek Hill, who's one of the fastest players in the, in the NFL. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to drop our safeties. Even our linebackers are going to drop further away from the line of scrimmage. So if you want to run the ball, if you want to do some of these, you know, you know, short-term, short passes, kind of like six, seven yards, whatever it is, we would rather have these long drives that take away the big play rather than exposing ourselves to, you know, Tyreek Hill, Hardman, some of these speedsters on Kansas City just running right past us. So if that was going to be the case, and if that was going to be the strategy that Buffalo was going to follow in this game as well, would Mahomes be patient? Would they be able to kind of have this short passing game? Could they adapt to that? Because it's not necessarily something that they're used to. Maybe they might force a couple of throws down the field into double coverage. We'll see how that goes. How is Kansas City going to counter that strategy from Buffalo's defense? And then flip it to the other side of the ball. When Buffalo's on offense, who's guarding Stephon Diggs? The guy who... I think led the league in catches and receiving yards. The guy who is the clear number one threat on Buffalo's offense, who has tremendous chemistry with Josh Allen, who is his go-to target along with Cole Beasley, but Beasley's kind of banged up, has been dealing with injuries. It's it's really is if you can stop Diggs or at least limit him, make it hard for him, 
that could go a long way to stifling this Buffalo offense. Unfortunately for Kansas City, you know, going into this game, who do you think was matching up against Diggs one-on-one if they were going to play man? Um, I personally will confess to not knowing any of the cornerbacks on Kansas City. So that seemed like advantage uh, Buffalo. You know, I know Tyron Matthew, the Honey Badger, is a great defensive player, but he's more of a safety he might be the one who's like matched up on a tight end or even a running back. He's not going to be guarding Stefan Diggs one-on-one. So my big question coming is this from the Buffalo's offense perspective, you know, who's on Diggs, who's guarding him, who's taking him away. And finally, the last thing I'll say, and this is something that I read in, in, you know, um, some really good kind of analysis from, from the NFL experts who know a lot more than I do on, on this topic, but they thought that Steve Spagnuolo, the defensive coordinator for Kansas city would do a lot of disguising. Because they thought that you know Josh Allen is a lot better throwing against man defense than he is against zone. They thought that Spagnuolo could kind of trick Josh Allen. If you mix up the schemes, if you kind of confuse him pre-snap, force him into some mistakes. Because it's a lot easier for him, apparently, to read man than it is to read zone. So it was a question of, could Spagnuolo's mind and his scheming, and also, you know, the pressure of Jones, the the you know intelligence of Matthew as a safety um you know could that kind of outweigh this powerful Buffalo offense and Josh Allen who's made tremendous strides this season he's been fantastic this season I think candidate for most improved player if that was something that the NFL gave in terms of an award I knew that they they do that in the NBA not necessarily in, in the NFL but he's been tremendous in terms of his accuracy his decision making whatever could Smagnolo, who has a history of this, of being a successful defensive coordinator, could he kind of mix it up with Josh Allen? So those are some of the, the keys, some of the things that I was kind of looking out for before the game started. And I think that each of those keys that I mentioned, each of those four topics, all of them went Kansas City's way. I think, first of all, the most important one I mentioned at the top, Mahomes' health. It turns out he looked great in this game. I thought he was the best player on the field. You know, if he was dealing with a turf toe injury, it, it wasn't that obvious. It seemed like he was able to step into his throws. It didn't seem like when he was in the pocket, he was really hampered by it. He even did a really good job of extending some plays where there was a free Buffalo pass rusher on a couple of plays, and Mahomes was able to use his smarts to kind of and his his elusive skills to kind of pump fake, shoulder fake, you know, elude the free rusher, and then still get the ball off for a Kansas City gain. So Mahomes' health, that that was a variable coming into this game, and that was a concern if you're a Kansas City fan. I thought he looked fantastic. Um, Avoiding sacks, extending plays, using his feet to scramble a couple of times on a couple of read option plays. Uh, Maybe not the same speed that he would have had without the turf toe injury, but I thought he looked really good, and that was obviously a huge key to Kansas City's win. The second key I mentioned, accepting the underneath routes not forcing anything deep. And I think that worked really well for them. I mean, Travis Kelsey, I think, tied the record for catches for a tight end in a postseason game in NFL history. He had nine catches for 92 yards in the first half alone. He ended up, you know, with, again, the tied most catches ever and two touchdowns in this game. You also, like, Tyreek Hill, you took away the deep shots for him, but he also caught, like, a five-yard pass. And because Buffalo couldn't tackle him, turned it into, like, a 70-yard gain. That was a big play. He ends up with the most yards for receiver in Kansas City postseason history. So, you know, their strategy of keeping everything in front of them 
worked to a degree in that they did keep like when Kansas City players caught the ball, they were in front of the safeties. It wasn't like Tyreek Hill was going bombing 80 yards down the field for a touchdown, but he turned a five yard catch into like a 75 yard catch and run. So it's one thing you got to keep them in front of them, in front of you, and then you got to tackle them. You know, yes, you keep everything in front of you, but you let Travis Kelsey get off. And the other part of this is you keep everything in front of you, but by doing short passes, that means that Kansas City is going to have the ball for more time. And so, yes, you don't want to give up the 80-yard bomb to Hill, but if you're keeping everything in front of you with short passes, that means there's more time that Mahomes has the ball in his hands. And as the best player on the field, that's not necessarily um, you know, a good strategy or a strategy that will lead you to a victory. So I don't know what the right strategy is from Buffalo's defense uh, in terms of like from their standpoint what they should have done. It's kind of like a difficult situation. You're kind of screwed if you do, screwed if you don't. Um, that's one of the things that makes this Kansas City offense so special is that they've got the best pure talent quarterback in the sport. They've got two all pros in terms of Hill and Kelsey as well. You know, McCole Hardman can spring off, you know, a, a big run whenever he wants to uh, because of his speed. I thought Darrell Williams, who's like the backup running back, I thought he had a couple of big runs and a couple of big plays as well. So, Again, I'm not trying to like criticize Buffalo and act like I know better than them. I don't know what the right option is going up against this Kansas City offense. They might just be that special where you take away their strength of these big time plays, keep everything in front of you, and they still kind of, you know, shred you and, and dice you up. So both of those things in terms of when Kansas City had the ball definitely went the Chiefs way. Flip to the other side, big question I had, like I said, who's guarding Diggs? Well, whether it was the scheme of Spagnolo or whatever it was. He was invisible in the first half. When the game was kind of still in the balance, when the margin was still close, when Buffalo still had a chance of this, which was really the first half of this game, two catches for 12 yards. Now he ends up with six for 77, but a lot of those were during, you know, garbage time. And I know that, you know, the final score of this game was 38 to 24. And you look at that and maybe you, if you didn't watch the game, you say, oh, they only lost by two touchdowns. That score does not reflect that this game was over by the time the fourth quarter rolled around. Buffalo scores a late touchdown. They recover a fluky onside kick. They kick a field goal to get it to 14 points uh, in terms of the deficit. But this game was really over. And so when the game was in the balance, they really held Diggs in check. It was very impressive. And I don't want this to be a case of like, oh, Stefan Diggs chokes. Oh, he didn't come up in the biggest game of the season when his team needed him. As a receiver, you can definitely be schemed out of a game. And I think one thing to take away for Buffalo is if Diggs isn't getting open, if he's being doubled, if they're playing zone, and there's, you don't want to force it to him where you're throwing a pick just to get Diggs involved. But who are the other options on Buffalo if you can't force it into Diggs? You know, I mentioned Cole Beasley, big-time big player throughout the regular season. He was banged up for sure. John Brown's their third receiver. He can't stay healthy. So, again, we're kind of like – talking about the game, but also looking forward to next season a little bit. This Buffalo team has a had a really good offense this year, but it did expose the question, if Diggs is being schemed out of this game by an opposing defense, who else is going to hurt you in the passing offense for Buffalo? Just a question for them to, to, to consider. I thought, you know, shutting down Diggs in the first half, fantastic job by Kansas City's defense. And then the fourth question, the key that I mentioned 
is the Spagnolo defense just overall. And that's actually going to lead to our hidden gem for this podcast. I mentioned it was a coach, not a player who's going to be the hidden gem for this episode. Your hidden gem for this podcast is Steve Spagnolo, someone who I have a personal affinity for. He was a defensive coordinator for my Giants when we upset the New England Patriots in 2007. He formed the defense that really did a great job of controlling arguably the best offense in the history of the game in terms of that 2007 Pats team where you had Brady and Moss and Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. Um, A team in New England who was, by the way, previously undefeated going into that Super Bowl. The Giants were huge underdogs. And Spagnuolo was the mastermind of a defense that really kept that Patriots team in check. So I love Spagnuolo. I will always love Spagnuolo for the fact that he brought that to our team and helped us win that Super Bowl. But he was also the defensive coordinator last year for the Chiefs when they won last year. He's now has the chance, depending on what happens in two weeks, he could be the defensive coordinator for three Super Bowl winning teams. Pretty darn good. And so I just wanted to highlight him as your hidden gem. Again, not a player. Most of the time it's player focused on this podcast for hidden gems. This time it's a coach, a coach who designed a game plan that again, limited digs, two for 12 in the first half, six for 77 for the game, most of that coming in garbage time. A coach who designed a defensive scheme that really limited this Buffalo offense to nine points, if you really think about it. I know that the score said they scored 24, but take away garbage time, take away the touchdown that Buffalo scored after McCole Hardman fumbled the ball on like the one-yard line. So you can't really put those points uh, on the Kansas City defense because Hardman really put his defense and his team in a bad position on special teams. So if we're really talking about non-garbage time and non-points scored off of Hardman's awful turnover, this defense really only gave up nine points, three field goals to this Josh Allen-led offense that was so good during the regular season. They forced Allen into an interception. There was another throw that was – A near interception should have been picked by Kansas City. They also sacked him four times. They hit him 10 times as well. And so I just wanted to highlight Steve Spagnuolo, your hidden gem of the podcast. Uh, Great, great job in terms of his scheme, in terms of his game plan. I think if you ask Spagnuolo before this game, if you could really limit, if you could say like your defense is going to be responsible for nine points allowed, You're going to sack Josh Allen four times. You're going to limit his best weapon to basically being invisible for the majority of the game. You're going to hit him 10 times, sack him four times, pick him off once, you know, have a a second time that should have been a second interception. I think he really would have taken that. I think he would have been thrilled if you had kind of proposed that to him before the game. And now he has a chance to make, uh, to, 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 you know, win another Super Bowl as a defensive coordinator. He's going up against Tom Brady. He knows how to beat Brady. He's done it before. It'll be really interesting to see what he comes up with in two weeks. Because let's be very real. You look at this Kansas City team going into the Super Bowl. And Mahomes, for all intents and purposes, maybe he's not 100% healthy, but he looks healthy enough to be the best player on the field. This offense has Kelsey. It has Tyreek Hill. They got Clyde Edwards-Hilaire back. Let's see if he can contribute something during the Super Bowl. So the strength of this team, don't get it twisted, is still its offense. But if this team can just have a serviceable defense 
can have a, a defense that doesn't kill you, can have a defense that holds up when it needs to, that makes plays when it needs to, that doesn't give in, that holds you know, opposing offenses to field goals instead of touchdowns, similar to what they did against Buffalo, that will be enough because of how great this Chiefs offense is. You just need a serviceable defense. You need a defense that's fine. And that will be enough because of how great this offense is uh, in terms of Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy and Patrick Mahomes. And so going into the Super Bowl, if you're Kansas City, you know you have the best player on the planet, regardless of what happens with the MVP. You have all these weapons on offense, and your defense just balled out. They only needed to be fine. Okay, they only needed to be serviceable. Instead, they were, I would say, excellent in this game. And so you go into a game here and you think about, okay, how are we going to win? Which team is more well-rounded? I think both of these teams in terms of Tampa Bay and Kansas City is an interesting matchup. I think both of these defenses are kind of underrated. But it would be really interesting if Steve, if Steve Spagnolo on the Kansas City side can kind of work his magic and beat Brady again. So that's your hidden gem. That's my analysis of the AFC Championship game. Really excited. I know we got to wait two weeks. It's going to be a long two weeks. But cannot wait for this matchup. You got two excellent quarterbacks. You got two offenses that have a ton of weapons. You have Evans and Godwin, maybe Antonio Brown if he can make it back and make it uh, back healthy on Tampa Bay side. You got Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes on Kansas City side. You got Tampa Bay defense, who they should be puffing their chests out right now too, because they were they were pretty solid in terms of their pass rush. Jason Pierre-Paul. Shaq Barrett really balled out. The secondary, they played okay. They held up against, you know, Aaron Rodgers. It's going to be a lot more difficult going up against Patrick Mahomes and some of the weapons on Kansas City's team. But if you're Tampa's defense, you should have some confidence coming into this game. If you're Kansas City's defense, you should have a lot of confidence going up against Tampa. And it'll be interesting because it's – it's rare, and this is like very, very brief Super Bowl analysis. So, so things might change. My opinion might change over the next two weeks. Don't hold me to this. But it's rare when you see a Tom Brady-led team go into a Super Bowl and you think that he may be a weak link. Maybe he is. He's the greatest of all time. He's won six Super Bowls. I get that. But if Tom Brady makes some of those decisions that he made against Green Bay and is as careless with the ball and inaccurate with the ball and forcing some of these throws in the Super Bowl the way that he did against Green Bay, you can't make mistakes. You can't give Patrick Mahomes extra chances. And so it'll be really interesting to see in the lead up to this game and all the analysis. And I'm going to read all of it because I love this stuff. I'm thinking about what are the key matchups? And, you know, there's a question of Eric Fisher, the, the left tackle in Kansas City. He might be out for the Super Bowl. I, I haven't seen an update on his injury. That could be a huge problem going up against Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul because Fisher is the starting left tackle for Kansas City. That's really, really bad. If he's hurt, you have to have a replacement left tackle going up against two edge rushers who just combined for five sacks against Green Bay. That's a problem. That's something to kind of monitor. But the other part that I'm really interested in is you got to think about, is Tom Brady going to be part of the solution? We're part of the problem. And how many times have you thought about that going into a Super Bowl or going even into a playoff game where you've thought, 
is Tom Brady going to going to make this more difficult for us in terms of his own team? When was the last time you thought about that? But again, if he's careless with the ball, if he's making these bad decisions, if he's wild and inaccurate like he was on some of these throws, like with his second pick playing against Green Bay, if he does that against Kansas City and you're giving Patrick Mahomes and Kelsey and Tyreek Hill and Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy extra opportunities, and if Steve Spagnuolo is you know, creating this scheme to get pressure and they can sack Brady like they did against Josh Allen and get in his face, It'll be really interesting to see if Brady is, you know, one of the reasons why Tampa might be in trouble in the Super Bowl. And that's a really unique thing to think about because I don't ever remember kind of considering that. And it's almost like libel. The greatest of all time. And we have to think about him in terms of being careful and limiting his mistakes. But that is the problem that you go up against that you kind of see and that you have to deal with when you're going up against such a talented team like the Chiefs, who maybe in two weeks from now we're talking about as the next dynasty, given that they've made three straight AFC Championship games. They've now made two straight Super Bowls. They could go for their back-to-back Super Bowl victories. Are they the next dynasty? They've locked up Mahomes for the next however many years is that that's that really long, crazy contract that he signed. Are they the next dynasty in the NFL? And who's beating them? So anyway, those are my thoughts on the NFC and AFC Championship game. Your hidden gem of the podcast, Steve Spagnolo, someone who I love, I'll always love, really happy to see him make it back to the Super Bowl, maybe win a third one. And he would have to go down as one of the best defensive coordinators ever if he does that, right? So we'll see. Um, I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, it was really exciting for me to talk about these things. Um, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you again soon. Peace. Thank you.